few years ago, uh, I had the best, well, one of the best uh, sporting experiences of my life. It wasn't because I did well, but my son won the uh, AAA uh, Mosquito, I was going to say Pee Wee, AAA Mosquito Provincial Championships. That's like 11-year-olds, right? 10 and 11-year-olds, you're like, oh, you haven't had much sporting success, right, Jeff, if you, that's the biggest one of your life. But it, it was. It was in, it was in Kamloops. Uh, if you've seen your kids succeed in something, it's way better than you succeeding. Um, it's also harder to watch them because you can't do anything about it ever. And so you, I'm the kind of person who goes for walks in the middle of the games and all those sorts of things so that I don't lose my mind. Um, it was in Kamloops, if you've been there, it's uh, MacArthur Island Park is where they play, beautiful fields, it's quite remarkable. I remember the final game, we'd played really well all season, we finally got to the final game, we were behind, but then we ended up coming back and, and winning it. I remember thinking in my mind at the time that the crowd went wild when we, when we won, it was just huge, and the sound was deafening, but I saw a video playback of it and there was like seven people there who were <laughs> excited and I was one of them. Uh, what was the most remarkable thing about, about it, though, is that about halfway through the game, there was a, the guy who does the porta-potties, you know, he goes and cleans it. That's one of those dirty job things where he goes around and he takes his truck and his big blue tube and shoves it down into the hole that we don't look in, and he sucks everything out. Well, he did this on a Sunday afternoon during our peewee, or during our Mosquito Provincial Championship, and so about the third or fourth inning behind us, like right behind the field, was a big truck. And it smells like, you know, Abbotsford. And uh, so I was, one of our parents went over and was like, Do you not know what's going on right now? What? No. <laughs> you know? Oh, what is it? It's the Mosquito AAA final. What? There's mosquitoes? So many now. It was a great moment, though. I don't know if you've ever had your kids win a, an event or you've won something great. You know that the, there's a kind of existential joy. You know what I mean, what I mean by that is like a, like a momentary whooshing joy that comes from sports that's unlike a lot of things that we experience in our society now. In fact, some people have started to wonder, why is it that sports are so popular these days? I mean, you can put as many games on as you possibly want on TV. You can sell tickets to almost every league you can possibly sell it to. People love going to sporting events. They cost so much money to go and watch bad teams, like Canuck tickets are cheap, right? Or, sorry, expensive. Should be cheap, but they are expensive. And why? Why are, so, why are we so into sports? Uh, there was a book written in around 2010. It was called, a book called All Things Shining by Hubert Dreyfus. He's a professor at Berkeley, University of California, Berkeley, and, and Sean Dorrance Kelly from Harvard University. And, and in it, they tried to explain what was going on in the culture to lead people to want to go to sporting events so much. Um, David Brooks, who is a New York Times columnist, he, he wrote about that book, their book. He did a little bit of a review, and uh, in it, he tries to describe kind of the worldview that these guys have, that these college professors have. And essentially, his argument is, look, um, everyone believes God is dead, so how should you then live? If there's, if there's no God and there's no afterlife, how then should you live? Where do you find your hope? Where do you find your joy? 
And the answer to these guys, these authors of this, this book, All Things Shining, was, well, you, you got to find it in the moments, what they call the whooshes. So here's what, here's what Brooks wrote about the book. He said, spiritually unmoored, many people experience intense elevation during magical moments that sport often affords. Dreyfus and Kelly, the authors of All Things Shining, mentioned the mood that swept through the crowd at Yankee Stadium when Lou Gehrig developed, delivered his luckiest man alive speech. I'm the luckiest man, man, man on the face of the, you know? Okay, I wasn't there either. <laughs> or the mood that swept through Wimbledon as Roger Federer completed one of his greatest matches. The most real things in life, they write, well up and take us over. They call this experience whooshing up. We get whooshed up at a sports arena, at a political rally, or even magical moments while woodworking or walking through nature. It's never happened to me while woodworking, but you've not seen my woodworking. <laughs> Dreyfus and Kelly say that we should have the courage, listen now, not to look for some unitary, totalistic explanation for the universe, read God. Look for, don't look for that, because it doesn't exist. Instead, we should live perceptively at the surface, receptive to the moments of transcendent whooshes we can feel in, say, a concert crowd or while engaging in a meaningful activity like making a perfect cup of coffee with a well-crafted pot and cup. You just see you standing over your coffee with your eyes half down. Well, this is the best existential treat I'm going to have today. You know, <laughs> I'm making a little bit of fun, but that's, that, what they're saying is that this is, the, this is the greatest thing that you can experience in a world where God is not real. In ages past, people used to put their hope in God and what he was going to provide for them ultimately and where he was going to lead them to an eternity with him. But now that's not what we believe as a culture. We believe that the best thing you can do is to live in the moment, to seize the day. And you know, we live that way to some degree, right? We believe it to some degree because sometimes it is exciting, right? There are existential whooshes, these experiences or the gifts or all these things. The problem, of course, is existential whooshes are really great if you have the means to provide for them. Like money. Hawaii is a great existential whoosh. It's way better than Chilliwack. <laughs> it, it, it's cheap to go to Chilliwack. Hawaii's going to cost you a little, a little bit more money. You know, a leather-seated Mercedes-Benz provides more of an existential whoosh than my Corolla, I think. So if you have the money to provide for the whooshes, that's, that's great. Or if you have the relationships in a good place, right? All of your relationships are good. Then you can have the whooshes because it's nice to share those whooshes with other people. If you have the money, if you have the relationships, if you have the health, you need to have the health. If you don't have the health, you can't experience the whooshes. If you don't have any of those things, what do we say? We say you have, to, you have to get them. You have to get into a position where you actually can have it. And if you can't have it, then what's the point in living anymore? So when things are hard and things are difficult, our culture basically says your, your job as an existentialist is to get out of that situation. So if you're having a lot of pain in your life and you're a young person and you can't see any way out, what do you start thinking? Well, maybe it would be better if I wasn't here. 
And as an old person, our society now says, listen, if you're dealing with recurring pain in your life, I mean, you can't even go out to the sporting event anymore or drive the car anymore. They take away all those things. Now you just sit in the home and you stare out the window. What kind of life is that? You know what? You, you, and you live with cancer or whatever problem it is that you have. You should just end it. In fact, we'll applaud you if you do that. You took things in your own hands. Seize the day. Well, I can't. Well, then you shouldn't live. What if your marriage isn't going really well and things are going really poorly? How are you going to seize the day there? Well, you get a new spouse. And then when that one doesn't work out, you get another spouse. Or if you find out that you're pregnant and that child uh, has some sort of special needs, a Down syndrome or something like that, who would possibly want to let somebody come into this world where there is no God and no afterlife and the only thing worth living for is existential whooshes? How many existential whooshes can a Down syndrome person have? So you're doing, you're doing them a favor by killing them before they're, they're born. Oh, our society is is bent on existentialism and the belief that you have to seize the day and do everything you possibly can, and that's the greatest hope that they can offer you in this present world. It's kind of hollow, isn't it? You're saying, why are you bringing this up and all the lights behind you in Christmas? (laughs) Well, I'm bringing it up because isn't Christmas like the height of existential holidays, right? Is there any greater whoosh than Christmas morning? If you're eight, no. Right, you down the stairs. Ah, you get your kid, parents up at four in the morning and they're trying to have the whoosh of sleep and they're, you're having the whoosh of the tree and oh, look at all the beautiful lights and we're gonna go skating and Santa will be there. And whoosh after whoosh after whoosh after whoosh. Problem, of course, is January is on the way. Right? the bills and all those things. So it might be fleeting for the moment, but it's gonna leave. This is a great moment of existential whoosh and it's the greatest hope people can offer you. And so today I'm gonna say, I think there's a better one. I don't care where you're from, what religious background you are, where you are in your religious journey, I think I can offer you a better hope. More particularly, I think Jesus is a better hope. So what I want to do in the next few minutes is I want to try to prove that to you from Revelation 21, verses 1 to 6. We are in a series that we're just starting leading into Christmas, and that is that we think that there's lots of things in this world that are going to provide for us, and uh, if we have these particular gifts in our lives, things will be much better, whether it's a, you know, a perfect cappuccino maker or a, or, or a new bike or that Mercedes, but whatever it is that we think is going to give us great joy, I, we're trying to say in the next few weeks that Jesus is a better gift than all of those things. He's a better hope, he's a better peace, he's a better joy, and he's a better love. So today, he, he's a better hope, Revelation 21, 1 to 6, this passage is about heaven. So... I want to ask and answer three questions. One, what is heaven going to be like? Second, why is it so great? And then finally, who gets to be part of it? What will heaven be like? Why is it great? Who gets to be part of it? Here's the first of those. Verse one, Revelation 21. Why will heaven, well, what will it be like? Then I saw, so it's John. John is writing, Apostle John, he's seeing this vision. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, 
There was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. I want to pick out three little phrases in there and, and kind of do a deep dive in each one. So the first one, there's three of them. The first one is uh, the, first, uh, the first heaven and first earth had passed away. What does that mean? What, what does it mean that the earth has passed away? Well, there's a debate about this. Has been for years in, in the church. Um, one of the options is to say, well, what's going to happen the fate of the earth in the future is that God is going to take his holy Bic lighter, light that baby on fire, put some kindling underneath it, and then it's going to burn up, and he's going to replace it with a new heaven and a new earth. So the one that we currently live on will be destroyed, and a new one will be put back in its, in its place. The other option is to say, no, actually, what's going to happen is God is going to renew the existing heaven and earth. He's not going to burn it up and throw it away. He's going to take what already exists, and he's going to renew it. So which is it? Burn up and destroy or renew? Well, the Bible actually kind of gives some, some evidence for both. So let's do some Bible study, okay? Let me first give you the passage that most people point to when he talks about burning up and destroying. It's uh, 2 Peter chapter 3, verse, verse 10 to 13. But the day of the Lord, so that's the day of, of God's judgment, will come like a thief, meaning that it's unexpected. The heavens will disappear with a roar and the element, elements will be destroyed by fire. And the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. Listen now, that day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire and the elements will melt in the heat. But in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven, a new earth where righteousness dwells. Doesn't that sound like the first choice? Right? Fire melting in the heat, elements dissolving, and a new heaven and a new earth. So burn the first one up, replace the second. Those people who've held this viewpoint have usually pointed out or have emphasized the value of the spiritual over the physical. To some degree, the earth that we live on, when people come along and say, oh, well, you should, uh, you know, we should care for the earth. They would say, yes, absolutely, we should care for the earth. But, you know, let's not get overboard because essentially the earth that we dwell on is, is ultimately going to be fried, right? So, you know, plastic straws are fine, thank you, you know? <laughs> and some people talk about how we need to be released from the cage that is this body and free to the who we really are. Who we really are is, is, is the disembodied, the, the, the spiritual or the non-physical part of ourselves. The other option, though, has a, some passages to defend it as well. The other option, that is that the earth is going to be renewed. Um, Romans 8, 19, and then verses 22 to 23. Listen, for the, for the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. What you need to see there is that the creation, okay, and the, and the children of God are somehow tied together here. So, so the, the children of God to be revealed, meaning that they're going to get resurrected bodies, the creation is waiting in eager expectation for that moment. Why? 
Well, verse 22, we know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. So the creation is going to be delivered from its pain somehow. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. So his rationale here is, look, what God is doing with people, the redemption of their bodies, is what also he's doing with creation. People are groaning for them to be delivered. Creation is groaning for it to be delivered to what? So the question you need to ask is, what is God going to do with human bodies? Because then you find out what he's going to do with the creation. Is he going to destroy the human body and replace it with something new? Or is he going to renew the body of those who've died? Well, uh, the answer to that is actually not that hard. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 goes in great detail about it. Listen to verse 47. Uh, The first man, that's Adam was of the dust of the earth. That means that he was physical, yes, but different than Jesus, who's the second man. The second man is of heaven. As was the earthly man, Adam, so are those who are of the earth. That's what you and I are like currently. And as is the heavenly man, so are those who are of heaven. So what was Jesus like? And just as we have been born, just as we have borne the image of the earthly man, so shall we bear the image of the heavenly man. So what are we going to have in the future? Well, we're going to have whatever body Jesus had, is what he's saying. Verse 50, I declare to you, brothers and sisters, that flesh and blood can't inherit the kingdom of God, meaning the bodies that we currently have, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Like, we're perishable, right? Believe me, I'm perishable right now. I know it's hard to believe, but I, I am. The imperishable is what can inherit the kingdom of God. Listen, I tell you a mystery, verse 51. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we will be changed. So what happens to human beings? Well, they get the same body that Jesus had when he was resurrected. What kind of body did Jesus have? When he was resurrected, did, did God say to, the, to Christ when he died, you know what, we're going to throw away that old body and we are going to replace it with a brand new one? Or did he take that body and renew it and make it imperishable? The second. God is, in other words, in the renewal business. This is, this is what he does with people. And because he's doing that with people, he's going to do that with the earth. You see the argument? And it seems that that's the way the scriptures Teach. But if that's true, what do we do with that second, t- second Peter passage? Well, let's look at the context. Okay, so here, let's look at the context. Second Peter chapter three, verse three. I love Bible study like this, okay? So second Peter chapter three, verse three. These are the verses just before, just before, above all, you must understand that in the last days, scoffers will come, scoffing and following their own evil desires. They'll say, <laughs> that's how you scoff, right? Where is the coming he promised? Ever since the ancestors died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. Oh, you believe in this coming of Jesus? <laughs> Do you know how, how many people have died, come and gone before, since that promise was made? I'm sure it's not gonna happen. Scoff, scoff, scoff. 
But, verse 5, they deliberately forget that long ago, by God's word, the heavens came into being and the earth was formed out of water and by water. What's that a reference to? Genesis, it's the creation accounts. In other words, by the power of the word of God, by the power of the promise of God, the earth came into being. By these waters, verse 6, also the world of that time was deluged and destroyed. What's that reference to? Noah's flood. Now when Noah's flood came, how was the earth destroyed? Did it totally wipe away the entirety of the existence of the earth? Or did it cover the surface of the earth so that what was on it could be purified? Well, it's the second one, right? That's how it was destroyed. By, verse 7, by the same word then, by the same promise, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire. What kind of fire? Well, a purifying one, like the water. Being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. Do you see? They both say the same thing, essentially. God is going to purify the world. Or, in other words, heaven is a place on earth. Do you remember the 1980s? There's a song like that. They were right. All truth can be found in the 80s. (laughs) Heaven is is a place on earth. Meaning that the the future that we have to expect is is one that's what's here. God is in the restoration business. So listen, I've said this before, and it's really important that you get this. I've met lots and lots of people who seem to not, there's lots of Christians who don't seem to understand what the Bible teaches about what happened with the afterlife. Here's what happens. People who die now, it says to be, to be, to, to, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So there is a sense in which you, you will be disembodied. If you died right now, you would be disembodied and you'd be with the Lord. I don't know what that's like. The Bible doesn't really talk a lot about that. It doesn't. When the Bible talks about heaven, it's not talking about that so much as it's talking about the new heavens and new earth. So to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. But you won't stay there. You will eventually come back here on a renewed heaven and new earth in imperishable bodies where you will experience all the great things that a renewed earth has to offer, like a good cup of coffee (laughs) at Coke Zero. Coke Zero? (laughs) Like cell phones? Like, I don't know. You need to convince your children that this is the case. Because they're thinking, when you say heaven, they're like, oh yeah, so that's the place that's like half, half like man, half animals, or like Narnia. No, no, not like Narnia. Like this, earth renewed, where the, where the mountains are freed from, from their bondage, where you're freed from your bondage to sin, where relationships are totally whole and renewed. That's your future. I had a friend who was sitting after we played basketball for a number of hours. And uh, we were in college, and we were sitting there on the side, you know, soaking in your own sweat, which was great back then. You're like, oh, this is so good. You've, you've got those endorphins going. Talk about a whoosh. And he looked over to me, and he said, man, I am going to miss this in heaven. And I was like, you're going to miss what? Well, like basketball. Rubbish. No way. Absolutely. We're going to sweat in heaven, man. I'm going to be good in heaven. We're going to dance in heaven. Oh, not here. I'm not going to dance. But there, man, I'm going to, you know, do the Dougie, whatever it is. I'm doing it all, right? (laughs) Heaven is a place on earth. So that's what it means that the heavens and earth will pass away. Here's, notice the other line. I said there were three things that were said in, in that, uh, 
in that first line in, in Revelation? You see, did you notice it said the sea, won't, the sea will be no more? There's no longer going to be sea there. What? What if you like surfing? What does he mean by that? Well, actually, in the ancient world, uh, the sea was a symbol for chaos. They used, to, they used to wonder what was underneath the surface. Lots of stories about what was under the surface. Because, you know, sometimes you'd see the, the tail of one of those things that was under the surface, and it was really big. But nobody had any scuba equipment. You couldn't, do the, you couldn't do the sonar or anything like that. And so you're like, okay, something's underneath there. And sometimes it eats ships. It's, a, it's, it's, the, it's the, the area of chaos was the sea. Also, if you read through the book of Revelation, one of the things you find out is that the beast who opposes God and who oppresses God's people comes from the sea. So it's a symbol for evil. It's a symbol for chaos. So if the sea is not there, what's, what, what, what John is basically saying in that is saying, look, there will be no evil there. There will be no chaos. Everything will be in order. And this should give you great hope because I, I spent a couple weeks ago a whole morning listening to papers being read at a theological conference about sexual violence taking place in, in North America these days. And it was being done by a bunch of Christian leaders and others who had done significant research. They, they, they linked me with some statistics that were particularly out of Canada after I had asked some questions at the end. So here are some Canadian statistics about sexual violence. One in four North American women will be sexually assaulted during their lifetime. That's remarkable. And 25% that we know about will be sexually assaulted at some point in their lifetime. Of every 100 incidents of sexual assault, only six are reported to the police. 94 out of 100 just go un, unclaimed or unreported. Only 2 to 4%, so of all the ones that are, that are reported, only 2 to 4% of all those reported are false reports. I know people sometimes say, well, this is, you know, you can't really trust the person who has happened as he said, she said. Only 2 to 4% have they found are false. So you have an A chance that the woman is telling the truth. 60% of sexual abuse or assault victims are under the age of 17 80% of sexual assault incidents occur in the home. 80% of assailants are friends and family of the victim. And 17% of girls under 16 have experienced some form of incest. That is a staggering statistic. Basically, one in five little girls, when they grow up, can claim that they've been the object of some form of incest. And this one's overwhelming to me. 83% of disabled women will be sexually assaulted during their lifetime. I got to tell you something that's fundamentally flawed about us, that we allow that kind of thing to go on. What's really scary is some of the statistics in churches are very similar. That these things kind of, they just happen within, behind closed doors. There's women who are sitting here right now who would be nodding I was listening to that, and I was started to shake, kind of in an anger. And all I could think about is, oh, come, Lord Jesus, come, Lord Jesus, come, Lord Jesus, come, Lord Jesus. Bring, bring judgment, but also bring peace. 
And what John is saying in Revelation is, is listen, there will be a day where none of that oppression, that violence will be no more, where the judgment of God will come down upon the perpetrators and the comfort of God will be finally completed upon those who've, who've been perpetrated against. Slavery will be gone. Greed will be gone. Oppression will be gone. Arrogance will be gone. There will be no sea. And you notice that at the end, it said, it said that the new heavens and new earth will, come, will descend like a, like a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. Uh, I've, I've done a lot of weddings in my, in my life as a, as a pastor, a lot of weddings. When I was a young adults pastor, I used to do weddings a lot during the summers. And um, everybody thinks their wedding is special. And it, to you, it is totally special. But after you do a lot of them, they are very similar. It's usually vows followed by chicken. So... <laughs> It's always chicken, man. <laughs> and it's, it's great. It's beautiful. And people try to do, they take their own little take on it and stuff. But most of the time, they're very, they're very similar. And so after a while, you kind of get into the role of being like, yeah, you're the efficient. And isn't this beautiful? And she comes walking down and she looks beautiful. And hey, broom, isn't she beautiful? And yeah, I mean, you, it's, it's fantastic. But there was one wedding that I, I officiated a few years ago that kind of, it, it kind of struck me out of my, my indifference to some degree, as an efficient, that was so surprising in its beauty. It was a, it was a hipster wedding, which means that uh, we're not going to do it in, in any indoors at all. We're going to find the most obscure location we can. So they put it out in the middle of a field at the Campbell Valley Park underneath a tree in the middle of the field. The women who were wearing heels were like all, you know, <laughs> falling in, and there's mud there, and it smelled like Abbotsford. And I... There was a barn off in the distance. Seriously, it's like a couple hundred meters away. And uh, the groom and the groomsmen, we all just, they had to stand behind it. Me as well. It's hot, July day, standing behind it because you can't see the bride. They had, they had planned this, I think, perfectly. The sun was shining. We came out, walked all long way across the field, stood in front of these people, looking back. The tree was behind us. We were looking back into the field, Barn in the distance, a little grove of trees over on the side. And behind this grove of trees came the bride. Just when the sun was setting behind the, behind the barn, so the shadow of the barn was casting out, and she walked alone across the field. And when she emerged from the trees, I went, oh dear, it's getting a little misty. <laughs> or pollen, there's a lot of pollen in the air. Over here, the groom was shaking, you know, because <laughs> it was magnificent. And when I, I, whenever I read this passage in Revelation 21, that's, that's the image. The idea is that she's been kept apart for all this time, and now she's descending as a bride beautifully adorned, wandering across the field with a smile on her face, looking only at that one, only at her bridegroom. This is the way the new Jerusalem will descend and come, and we will finally be complete. The bridegroom and the bride will be together, and together we will have a glorious future. There will be no sea there and no evil. It will be a physical earth with all the joys and pleasures. Talk about whooshes. You should want this. Never to end, never to be fleeting. It will always continue, and each day will be better than the last. So the next question that you have to ask is, okay, is that what makes it so great? All that stuff, all, all the joys that are in it, or is it something else? 
So look at verses three and four. Here's what I want you to do when I read these. I want you to think to yourself, which one of these two verses gets you more excited? Okay, For the, as far as the future, which one? Verse three or verse four? Here's verse three. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them and they will be with his, be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. Verse four, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There'll be no more death, mourning, crying, or pain for the old order of things has passed away. Now I gotta tell you, when I read that, I go right to verse four. That's the one I quote and I put on my mirror. There'll be no more crying and mourning or pain or tears for the old order of things has passed away. Whoosh! Is that what makes heaven so great? Because I gotta tell you, I actually think that John, the author here, thinks that that's a product of actually the great thing. What's the great thing? We will be with God. Isn't that what verse three says? God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them and they will be with his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. That's the treasure. John Piper in his lovely little book called God is the Gospel reflects on this. He said, the critical question for our generation and every generation is this. If you could have heaven with no sickness and all the friends you've ever had on earth and all the food you ever liked and all the leisure activities you ever enjoyed and all the natural beauties you ever saw, all the physical pleasures you ever tasted and no human conflict or any natural disasters, could you be satisfied with heaven if Christ were not there? Christ did not die, he says, to forgive sinners who go on treasuring anything above seeing and savoring God. And people who would be happy in heaven if Christ were not there will not be there. The gospel is not a way to get people to heaven. It's a way to get people to God. Now, I think he's right. The challenge that you and I have is that we really, really like the stuff that he provides. Sometimes more than we like the fact that he provides it. Put it another way, I think we treat God as instrumental. It's very common to treat God as instrumental. Give you an image to show what I mean. Uh, my son, Ethan, used to really love milkshakes when he was a little guy, McDonald's milkshakes. It wasn't a lot to do in New Zealand, so you go to McDonald's. I know, sin, sin, you can, it's all later, you can write me letters about an evil parent. So we'd go to McDonald's, get the milkshake, he would start sucking on the milkshake, McDonald's milkshakes are, are, are great for an hour, and then after that, they turn to something very different. And he, he's sucking in the milkshake. Sometimes you get a broken straw, though, right? Because remember the plastic straws they, back in those days with the plastic? So a little cut in the side, and it ruins the suction. What do you do when you get a broken straw in the milkshake? You need to have the suction to get the shake up. The treasure is the shake. If the implement or instrument that you're using to get the treasure from the cup to your mouth is broken, you just swap it out and you use another one. The straw is instrumental. It's just an instrument. The real treasure is the shake. Another image. Um, I was printing off my sermon notes yesterday and uh, the printer wouldn't work, common problem. I was standing over the printer and I was saying to the woman who was near me in the office, listen, this is exactly what I'm trying to say in my sermon tonight. 
I want the treasure, which is my sermon. And it's a treasure, baby, right? <laughs> I, the treasure needs to come out of the printer. The printer is instrumental. And if this one doesn't work, what do you do with ones that don't, instruments that don't work? You swap them out, you're another printer. You buy another printer, whatever. When I say that we treat God as instrumental, what I mean is we have a habit of saying that, God, I want you to provide all the stuff, that I, all the treasure that I actually want. And if you don't do it, swap you out for another God. There's other ways to get it. But what I really love is, the, is, is this other stuff. Instruments are only loved insofar as they provide the really loved thing. So if God is your treasure, you're always going to be excited because everything you go through in your life is going to be giving you God. Success, failure, all those things are instrumental to give you God. You're promised that in Scripture as a Christian. But if you flip it around and God becomes the instrument to give you the really loved thing, you're going to constantly be upset with him when he doesn't deliver. You can always know if, you, if, you, if you're treating God as instrumental when you suffer, when you don't get what you really want. So my son won baseball. He also lost the following year in devastating circumstances. I was so upset. I was upset at the referees. I was upset at my wife. I was upset at my kids and the dog and the grass. And so I went for a walk. Third or fourth inning, I was walking, losing. And I remember where I was in Victoria, arguing with God. God, you know how much I do. You know how hard I work. You know how much I've given up. I'm in Canada, Lord. You know, like, it's hard. This is... Lord, come on. It's funny because, you know, the year before he had given the gift. I'm so angry. What am I doing there? I'm treating God as instrumental. Because the, really, the thing I really want is the win. And you're not giving me the win. I don't even know if I can serve you anymore. And you, you might laugh and think, oh, that's so stupid over stuff like baseball. Okay, what's the thing that you're willing to swap God out for? You wonder why it is that so many people leave the faith. So many people walk away, and the answer is because they treat God as instrumental. And they walk away because things don't go right in their lives, and so they swap him out. Get a new straw, man. But heaven is great because God is there. Yes, there's all sorts of other things, but heaven is great because God is there. Finally, who gets to enjoy it? Look at verses five and six with me. Um, he who was seated on the throne said, I'm making everything new. And then he said, write this down. And Jesus on the throne saying, okay, John, I need you to make sure you get your pen here and just write this one down and mark this one like in some red ink or something. Maybe take some blood and outline it. For these words are trustworthy and true. And the other ones are trustworthy and true, but you need to bank on these ones. He said to me, it is done. I'm the alpha and the omega. I'm the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. What is the condition for receiving all the blessings of God and heaven and all that he is. What, what is the condition? Thirst. 
to the thirsty. This is not the only place where Jesus says this sort of stuff. He says, Matthew eleven twenty eight, 28, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I'll give you rest. Who's gonna come to it? Well, the weary, weary and burdened are. What if I don't feel weary and burdened? Well, you're not gonna come. What if I don't think I'm thirsty? You won't come. The prerequisite, the qualification that you require in order to receive all the blessings of heaven, eternal bliss with God, failure. Thirst, burdens, weariness. It's no wonder that Jesus says there's a Pharisee walked up to the kingdom of God and said, look how great I am, I'm amazing. Not like that tax collector over there. God, you must be really proud of me because I come with such a good look today. And the tax collector stands at his distance, won't even raise his head to heaven and he pounds his chest and says, oh God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus says in Luke 18, 14, I tell you that this man, this tax collector rather than the other went home justified before God for all who exalt themselves will be humbled and those who humble themselves will be exalted. So here, the big question for you is, are you empty? Are you thirsty? Are you weary? Man, I know, listen, I get it. We all show up here. It's Christmas season. We're put on our, I look good today, right? You know, like, we try to put up on our show, and how's it going? It's going great. Doing good, doing good. I get it. We want to be, we want to perform in front of everyone. But the funny thing is, is that we're a collection of people. If you're a Christian, you're a collection of people who are here because you stink. We're a collection of people who are here because we are moral failures. We're a collection of people who are here because we're weary. And he will give you rest. Look, uh, let me finish with this. I have a friend who I spoke to this last week. He's been going through some emotional challenges and because uh, I deal with some of that myself. He felt safe in talking to me and so let me give you his name and phone number. Just kidding. Um, he, um, he was telling me that he's a pastor and he was telling me that he just got so overwhelmed recently that he was driving home to his house and he just started to cry. He couldn't stop crying. It was just overwhelmed with grief and sadness over everything, over his own failures, over all the things that he hadn't done right as a pastor and how the, 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 the power sometimes goes to his head and some of the difficulties he faces and all, like, all of that stuff. And he just feels so inadequate for all of it. Wonders about his children and his wife and all the future that he can provide and all of the finances that are gonna be needed just felt totally inadequate. And he said, I don't, you're not a big... You know, I don't have these massive experiences with the Holy Spirit, he said, but in this one moment, like, tears coming out of my face. I was driving home, and I felt like the Spirit of God just sat down next to me, and the whole glory of God was in my car. And he said, all I could hear in my head repeated over and over again was this line. Everything's gonna be okay. It's all gonna be all right. Listen, if you're a Christian here, I don't care what it is that you're facing. I don't care what challenges you have. If you come to Jesus because you're thirsty and you received him as your savior, I can say based upon the words of the one who is faithful and true, the beginning and the end, the alpha and the omega, write this trustworthy thing down. It is all going to be all right. And that's a better hope. Let me pray. Father, I'm thankful for your grace. Uh, we didn't get here by ourselves. We didn't uh, muster up the courage or faith or importance or merit to impress you in any way.
And yet here we be. Lord, a lot of these things are sometimes just mental. Like you can tell stories and you can give images and all these things, but they're very, they sometimes just stay up in our heads. I pray that you would push them deep down into our hearts, that we'd respond to you with faith and joy, that actually uh, we would look forward to the great whooshes that will never end. And we wouldn't settle for something so menial and small as the little things that are in front of us today. We look forward to the great joy that will be ours. Come thou long expected Jesus, we pray. In his name we pray, amen.